Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to read at verse 5, starting at verse 4 rather. Philippians 3 verse 4. Oh, I might also have confidence in the flesh. This is Paul writing now. If anyone thinks that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day, I'm of the stock of Israel, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and is touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. As far as righteousness in the law, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count but all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ." Verse 9. And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now may the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Amen. Our brother was reading in Luke chapter 24. After Jesus from them, what were their words? They said, did not our heart burn within us while He talked to us by the way and while He opened to us the Scriptures? Well, I hope that we all feel the same feeling that they feel when the Word is read, when the Scriptures are opened, and especially when our understanding is opened. It says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep the things which are written therein. So blessed is he that reads, that's me to you this morning, and blessed are they that hear the words of this prophecy of this book. So anytime the word is read, it should, for a believer, cause us to jump with excitement, with enthusiasm. This is God's word from heaven for us to build us up, to edify us, to instruct us, instruct us, excuse me, on our most holy faith. I'm going to use the PowerPoint this morning. I'm going to try at least. Yes. What, what is that that he's holding? I want to ask the kids that are under 10. What is, what is, who is that and what is he holding? What is it known as? The what? What is it, uh, Renee? What is that up there? Who is this guy here? Who is he? You said Moses? Who is this man here? Did you say your grandfather? No. No, we all know who that is. I hope it's Moses. Moses is definitely the key character of the Old Testament, along with Abraham. But Moses was the lawgiver. Jesus is contrasted or compared in some ways with Moses in the Gospel of John when it tells us the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So here we have what are popularly known as the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, which is another word, ten words of instruction. And those came from Mount Sinai. That's what God had intended to give to Moses as the lawgiver would give to the children of Israel. Can any one of the children give us one of the Ten Commandments without looking up there? Anybody? Lillian, yes. Can you name one of the Ten Commandments? Don't look. Do not what? Covet. Very good. That's one. Another one, Ivy? Do not murder. That's a good, another one. Well, we could go through them all, couldn't we? And they are key. They are important. There's no doubt about it. But the Bible says if righteousness could come, the law would indicate that. If somebody could keep these commandments, all of them, perfectly, then that person would be classified as righteous. 
So the question that we're asking this morning then is, how righteous are we? You know, the Bible asks some very important questions, and I'm going to give you some of them that I think are extremely important questions, and I would like to focus on the last one that I'm going to mention. The first one is in Isaiah 33, verse 14. It says, Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? That is a sobering verse. When we think of hell, the countless ages of eternity, where there the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, who among us in this room, in this gathering today, will be or dwell with everlasting burnings? The next question is, Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure in thy sight? Who can say that? Another important question the Bible poses. What must I do to be saved? Acts 16.30, the Philippian jailer. But this is the one that I want to focus on this morning. And I think this is a very, very important question. And it's found in Psalm, excuse me, Job 25, verse 4. How then can a man be justified with God? That's a critical question. That's what every human being needs to settle in this lifetime before they leave it and go to the next. How then can a man be justified with God? That verse implies that we're all in in necessity of having to be justified before God. Because we're not born just before God. We're not born right before God. We know that the Bible teaches us that we've sinned and in sin did my mother conceive me. We live in sin. No man that lives that doesn't sin. Therefore, we are in need of justification. How then can a man be justified with God? We know that there are angels in God's presence that say day and night, what are the words? Holy, holy, holy. Endlessly, they say that over and over again. You know, those same angels and God looking down from heaven could say to us, sinful, sinful, sinful. Meaning there is a great chasm between God and man. But praise the Lord, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men. Job said, oh, that there was one that would lay his hand on God and one that would lay his hand on me and bring us together. Hallelujah, that that has happened by those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul is intending to communicate here when he's boasting and could boast about all of his past credentials. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Hebrew. He was circumcised. He was a law keeper. He kept everything perfectly, as he says, as far as touching the law, blameless. Ceremonially, he observed it all. How righteous are we? How righteous would Paul have been considered? There we go. This is how the question that we're asking, how can a man be justified with God? Second Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him, that's the Lord Jesus, what? To be sin for us. Our sins that we're born with, us there with the hands up, pleading for mercy, surrendering, That's the only way in which we can be justified with God. We have to recognize that all my sins were laid on Jesus. God made Him to be sin for us. That's enough to just cause us to be in awe. God made Him, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Jesus never sinned. He did no sin, He knew no sin, and in Him was no sin, and yet God made Him to be sin for us. Do you hear that in churches today? Have you heard that in your past churches? I I don't think so. I certainly never did. It was at least never emphasized, but the importance of this is extremely critical. God made Him to be sin or sin for us, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. How righteous are we before God? You know, many years ago there was an artist named Stenberg. He had an artist studio in Dusseldorf, Dorf, Germany. And he agreed to paint a picture of the crucifixion of Christ for the church there in the city. And it was to be a masterpiece. And he would be paid a large, large price for the work that he was going to accomplish. But before he began to paint, he carefully checked the scriptures for the details about the death of Christ. And he did it for several weeks. And at last he began to paint. First the background, then the cross. Day by day he added a little more and a little more. Then he got tired and he forgot about it. He walked out in the country countryside one day and he just started to do some sketching. And at the edge of the forest, Stenberg saw a gypsy girl weaving a straw basket. She had long black hair, large shiny black eyes. What a painting, Stenberg thought. The girl stood up and did a gypsy dance before the artist. Stan, said Stenberg, this week you must come to my studio. I'm going to paint you. But sir, the girl replied, I'm only a poor gypsy girl. Come, said Stenberg. And she came at the appointed time. Her name was Pepita. Stenberg was ready for her. Stand, sit, he ordered. Pepita had never been in a studio. She asked many questions. Then suddenly she turned and happened to notice the picture that he was painting of the crucifixion. Who is that, she said. He replied, the Christ. But what are they doing to him, she said. He said, crucifying him. But who are those cruel people in the background? Stenberg put down his brush and said, Now look here. You must stand there still and do not move your lips to speak. She remained quiet, but her eyes were fixed on the crucifixion. As she left that day, she asked, Was he bad? No, no. Very good, Stenberg replied. Each day Pepita came, she asked another question. If he was good, why did they do this to him? Stenberg answered, listen, I will tell you once for all. Then he quickly explained the story of the crucifixion. And as he did, he noticed her eyes were filled with tears. At last, both paintings were finished. Pepita was delighted with the picture of herself. Then she walked to the other picture and looked silently and said to Stenberg, You must love him very much, sir, when he has done all that for you. Do you not? Then she left quickly. Pepita's words seemed to ring in Stenberg's ears. You must love him very much when he has done so much for you. He could not forget those words. He now felt troubled and unhappy in his heart. He told, sold the painting of the church for a fraction of his worth, but he was still troubled inside. One evening he went for a walk, and people who seemed to be happy entering into a church. He joined the people in there. He heard the message of the gospel, and he came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. Hallelujah. His painting was hung, and people flocked to see it. And one day he found Pepita standing in front of that picture weeping. Oh, sir, she cried, if he had but loved me so. Stenberg sat down and explained to her that Christ died for people of every race and everyone who will trust in him. Pepita listened quietly and said, I believe it. And two years later she died firmly trusting in Christ also grew old and died. And years later, a young nobleman wandered into the gallery where that painting ended up. He read the words under this, under the picture, All this I have done for thee, what hast thou done for me? Those words spoke to the young man's heart that night 
who devoted his life to serving Christ, and that nobleman was Count Zinzendorf, who lived from 1700 to 760 and became a famous missionary for many years. That's where we gain our righteousness, brothers and sisters, and let us never, ever, ever forget that. Martin Luther says it this way, This is the mystery of the riches of divine grace for sinners. For by a wonderful exchange, our sins are now not ours, but Christ's. In Christ's righteousness is not Christ's, but ours. This is an awesome exchange that we get His righteousness and He gets our sins. Who got the better of the two deals? It's obvious the Lord Jesus had wrath poured out upon Him. But what was the unjust sentence He received? Did He deserve this? Someone wrote, He submitted... Jesus, that is, to the ignominious death of crucifixion on a Roman cross. I'm afraid we've grown accustomed to that imagery. We wear gold crosses on our ears. We paste the cool Celtic crosses on our shirts or somewhere else. And even Madonna wears a cross these days. And many more. Would his death make more? of an impact on you if I said that the innocent Lamb of God was electrocuted like some child-raping, mother-murdering, blaspheming, slave trader for our lack of love? Would it shock you if I said that he was strapped to a gurney, wheeled into a room before a self-righteous audience, who despised him and gleefully cheered when he received a lethal injection for our disobedience? Can you picture him before a firing squad, naked, blindfolded, with all the world looking on him, confirmed in their belief that he was getting what he deserved and executed like some pervert in our place? And as if that weren't all enough, the father, his father, around whom his entire existence orbited, poured out his wrath upon Jesus, his son, and deserted him at the very moment of his death. Because in all fairness, you have earned both wrath and desertion. This was the sentence carried out on the sinless one. This should create worship, brothers and sisters, in our hearts. Uh, we can't get enough of the cross. I hope we all believe that. The hymn writer says, Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. We need to teach ourselves and preach to ourselves daily about the cross of Christ. We need to view it afresh daily and moment by moment because that's where it all Started. That's where it all is said there at the cross. I don't know if you watch the news today. I just caught a little clip of it uh, where uh, the Yankees were playing the Red Sox last night. And the left fielder for the Red Sox, I don't know his name, Vertigo or something like that. Never heard of him. I don't know these new guys. But anyway, he uh, and this is what they do between innings. They usually toss the ball to each other, right? Kind of loosen their arms up the right field and throws it to the center fielder, center fielder to the left fielder or whatever. So obviously the left fielder had caught the last ball before the inning was going to start. The batter was up the bat. So he took the ball. He threw it into the stands behind him just out of like friendliness and courtesy. And you know, here you go, guys. Here's one. And a Yankee player happened to catch the ball. And apparently the, the, the Red Sox player just turned it back like, okay, here's a ball for you guys up there. Well, the Yankee uh, uh, fan caught the ball, and with his back turned, he threw the ball at him. And I'm not sure if it hit him, but his intention was to hit him with a fast pitch on the backside of his head. Now, what kind of gratitude would that have been? Well, you know, when you think of that, it's a very poor illustration, but what Jesus did on the cross, what kind of a response do we give to what the Lord did for us? 
Fitzpatrick in her book puts it this way, your growth in holiness is firmly bound to your appreciation of the gospel of God's love. Is that what springs your obedience? What creates a desire to follow Him? We showed the Ten Commandments earlier. That law can't produce what the love of God can produce in you. What Jesus accomplished on the cross and what that creates in the believer can never be imitated by someone who's simply looking at the Ten Commandments and trying to gain righteousness that that way because it's unattainable, because man is already condemned and guilty and incompetent to be able to satisfy the standards of God. The hymn writer says, To work and toil the law demands, but neither gives me feet nor hands. But greater news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Wow. That's what the gospel does. It sets us free. It energizes us. It produces in us power that's not from ourselves. It is not I, but Christ lives in me. Paul says it's the grace of God that works in me. Where does that come from? Faith's one look at Christ expiring on the tree. One hot believing glance at Him can set the prisoner free. Hallelujah. That's what happens when we take a look at the Lord and that's what He can create in us. A brother from the uh, state of Texas had sent me an email. I guess it was late last night. I opened it up this morning. And it was a commencement message that Denzel Washington gave to the students of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm not sure if it I think it was current. I'm not sure. Looking at Washington, it looked like it, it's a very recent address that he gave at the commencement exercises. And he sent this to me um, with, a, uh, with a, someone else attached to the email, uh, hoping that the person who he had the email attached to would listen to that, and then he advised that person to contact me. And it was just a 10-minute presentation, and I thought, 10 minutes, you know, I'm kind of working on the, my sermon right now, but I thought, nah, I'll give it a look and just see what, what this is all about. Maybe it's something important. I don't want to miss it. Well, anyway, I, I listened to the whole thing, and I would say it, it's one of the finest motivational speeches you might ever hear. It's done wonderfully. It's just a, a great presentation. Um, but, but, and it's true, God does create everybody with potential. Thank God for the natural gifts that people have that, are, that they're born with and things that, can, that people can accomplish. When we think of our current day and the advances that are made in, 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 in science and medical worlds and, and all the different fields of study, the improvements that we enjoy in our life. I mean, look at our lifespan. The lifespan of us today is about 80 years old. Go back 50 years ago, it was more like 64 years old. Uh, that's a blessed benefit that we gain from the knowledge that has increased over the years. So we thank God for those that are college graduates and get their master's and law degrees and they become experts in their field and oftentimes it benefits society and we're the recipients of it. And we thank God for these blessings. There are the tubal canes out there as we get in Genesis. Those that can work with their hands, craftsmen and other kinds of skills that God uh, gives to mankind. But anyway, in this motivational speech... And remember, if it wasn't sent just to me, it was particularly sent for the person that was attached in the email. And I thought, well, how am I going to respond to this? I can't really amen it from a, a, the standpoint of what we're talking about this morning. Yes, it's a great motivational speech, and I'm sure that the students got a benefit from it. And I don't know Denzel Washington that well, and I think some of you might say that he's a believer. He could be. I don't know. I heard that he was. Praise the Lord if he is. Wonderful. He did mention God, but faith in God. It was just a quick reference to that. But I ended up having to write to that person whose name happens to be Georgie. Uh, and uh, I said to him, I said, what I know is this. Jesus' words are, without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And the most important thing in the way in which we live is how we live before God. 
It tells us that in Romans chapter 14, verse 8. Whether we live, we live unto the Lord, or whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we die unto the Lord. That is where our responsibility and our accountability ultimately lies. Though I may be able to benefit man in some ways, I'm still primarily thinking about living before God. That ought to be the highest priority. And I gave a simple example. I said it's like a branch that's broken off from the tree. Unless it's attached, it can draw from the nourishment of the tree. It cannot really produce anything. And if it comes to the things of God, that's where it has to come from. It has to come from the Lord. The Lord is our strength. Let's look at this slide. Let's look at what are known as indicatives and imperatives of the Bible. Let me explain to you first what an indicative is. An indicative is simply a statement of fact about a person or something of their status. This would be the status of a believer. Let's talk about it in our context. The status of a person, what you are, okay? The imperatives is how you live or what comes from who you are. And that's really kind of pretty basic. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. For out of the heart proceeds, and so on and so forth. So what we are in the inside, for what a man thinketh, so is he. You are what you think. You are what you really are in the inside is truly what you are before God. So the indicatives here would be in the red, and the imperatives are in the blue. So if we look at the first one, Paul, at Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. See, this is what has, this is what we are. We have been, it's a past tense, crucified with Christ. For those of you that are saved, that's true of every one of you. You have been crucified with Christ. Factually, now, what is the fruit of that fact? It's the imperatives. I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the norm for someone who has been crucified with Christ. If you have a no problem with being crucified with Christ, but do have a problem by living by faith in the Son of God, then you have a problem. Because there can't be this segregation of this from that. And let's look at some other examples. I love this passage in Galatians. Uh, excuse me, Colossians 3.1. If you then be risen with Christ. Okay, here we're crucified with Christ. Here it says you've been risen with Christ. Now, I wasn't there and you weren't there when Jesus rose from the tomb. Matter of fact, nobody was there. The angels actually were the only attendants when you think of it. And the Lord somehow put them in a slumber uh, when that rock was blown out and, and, and Jesus come, came out of that tomb. But it says of us, and this is what faith brings us to, a realization, spiritual realization, that we have been risen with Christ. That's the indicative. The imperative is what? We seek those things which are above. That's one of the distinguishing marks about believers that we're heavenly minded. In Hebrews 3.1 it says, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. We're different than the world. Before I would live for the world, I was in the world and of the world. My underlying uh, motto was, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. God was not in my thoughts. Wasn't in your thoughts, really, if you weren't saved? The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Psalm 10, verse 4. Another indicative. As newborn babes. That's what we are. We've been born again. That's another expression for the new birth. You're a newborn babe. And you're never going to not be a babe. Even if you're a man, you're still a babe. You see? You're a new babe, a newborn babe. And as a result of being a newborn babe, what is the fruit of that? The desire for the pure milk of the Word. This book is our diet. This is what we have to live on. Acquaint yourself with it more and more. And if God's not speaking to you through it, you're either not saved or you're in a bad state. 
Well, you're just simply not connecting well. Ask the Lord. Say, Lord, lighten up the words. Cause Your Word to bless me so that I can hear Your voice, so that I can be encouraged. Speak, Lord, so that Thy servant will hear. Looking at some of these other indicatives. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God... Okay, this is the indicative, right? You should know this by now, the Reds. Christ forgave you. You're a forgiven person. All your sins are gone, buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. My sins are G-O-N-E, gone. Christ forgave me. And He's never going to come back as an Indian giver and take them back from you or me. It's a permanent gift. The gift of God is eternal life and He doesn't snatch it back out of our hands. It's a permanent possession. Therefore, if Christ has forgiven you, wouldn't it be even logically appropriate that you would forgive others? How can you not forgive others? Only if you're not forgiven by Christ. I was reading that list about, you know, if if if, if we looked at Jesus' crucifixion in a way like is described here as someone who was before a a firing squad naked, blindfolded uh, with all the world looking on uh, or like uh, it goes on to say like a child raping, mother murdering blaspheming, slave trader and if maybe you're guilty of some of those things sins, sins If you never did them physically, you did them in your heart. And yet, God has forgiven you all of them, and the Bible classifies you, this is the indicative, Christ forgave you. I don't know how many of you would ever do this, but sometimes I I take my bicycle and I ride through the cemetery. Sometimes I stop and I pause and I think, and and I I like to read uh, the epitaphs on on the... uh, on these graves, and some of them have very outstanding... Uh, matter of fact, in the back of one of my Bibles, I have a, a dozen different sayings from gravestones that go back to the 1700s and early 1800s, and they're worth looking at, I'll tell you, because it carries a lot of, they carry a lot of truth. But really, the, the bottom line is this. On every one of those tombstones, it could be put this way. Uh, on one stone... Died in sins, another gravestone died in Christ. Died in their sins, died in Christ. And I wonder sometimes, how many of these are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air? How many of those are going to be called up that are the righteous? The hour is coming in which all in the grave shall hear His voice. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil. How do we do good? Someone asked Jesus, what shall I do that I might work the works of God? So how could we be classified as good? Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He has sent. That's the goodness, that's the righteousness that you have in Christ Jesus. Paul says, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, those Ten Commandments, those could never generate salvation for me. I could never keep them in a way that would gain God's satisfaction. I can't merit God's favor by what I do. I have to look away from myself and then I'm awed by the reality that what I was, I no longer am now. This is my new status before God in you too. The Bible says He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts them out of the dunghill and sets them among princes. What an exchange we've gotten from the Lord. What an alteration of what we were to what we are now. Now let's talk lastly about our identity. Our identity. What do you want to be known as or want to be known for? When you die, what do you want to uh, have be thought about you? Uh, the kind of job you had, possibly? Uh, your family ties? Um, maybe some accomplishments that you've had in your lifetime? Achievements? 
whatever they may be, all, all commendable, no doubt about that. Um, I don't know if this is done anymore, but some of the funerals that I've gone in the past with a certain group of brethren that I was in uh, church association with, when someone would die and their body would be in the casket, um, the Bible would be placed right over their chest in a way that the person passing by the casket could see what was there. And many times the person, not the, for that person that was in the casket, that Bible was placed there with a circle or a highlight of the verse that God used in their salvation. And I'll tell you, it's always very touching to go by the caskets and to see the bodies with the Bibles there, with the verses that God used in their salvation. Now, as you think about your own personal salvation, you may not have a highlight verse particularly that you could say you were saved from. Would anybody, uh, who would testify that there was a verse? In, uh, raise your hand. Did God use a verse or a couple of verses in your life and your salvation? Yeah, so a bunch of you have had that. And those of you that haven't, it's nothing to be uh, nervous about or upset about or anything like that sort. But God did somehow mysteriously in His uh, amazing ways communicate to you His Word by His Spirit to your heart that gave you this new life. So what am I? How righteous are we? Now look at what the Bible says is our identification. When Christ, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Just focus on that. Christ, who is Fred's life, Shannon's life, Mike's life, Josiah's life, Michelle's life, Shirley Ann, and on and on. Christ who is our life, your life, my life. It made me examine my own self and I said, Lord, what am I, am I really living for you? Do I have, have I embraced you such that, that I can say that you're my life? You know, I live for my wife, I live for my children like you do, or a family member or some other one that you certainly, you, you sacrifice and dedicate yourself for. But who do you have the most allegiance towards? Who should you be the most loyal to? The one who gave his life for you. Christ who is our life. What a way to describe a believer. This is our life. Sometimes you ask, what's your life all about? The song that Dionne Warwick used to sing, What's it all about, Alfie? What is it about? Christ is our life. For to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. That's what we should be recognizing. Next, look at this. When He shall appear, we shall be like Him. So, not only is Christ our, our life right now, that who we live for, but we're even going to be transformed in such a way, 1 John 3, 2 says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall be appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see, his, see Him as He is. We shall be like Him. You know, we sometimes wonder, what am I going to look like when I get to, to glory, when, my, when, I, when this mortal body has to put on the immortal body? Am I going to look like I did at 29 or when I'm 99? You know, am I going to look like how I look after I was crippled or before I was crippled or before I had wrinkles or after I... I don't know. But you'll be identifiable because the Bible tells us that He's going to restore our bodies that we lived in in such a way that they will be recognizable, that they will be you, that chemistry of that body will be the chemistry connection with the body that you lived in in this lifetime. How that can happen... You have to ask a nurse those kinds of questions or a doctor. I don't know how that can happen, but the Bible tells us that it will, and it will happen, and we believe that. A couple more passages here. Oh, wrong way. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Do you have any confidence about what it's going to be like when you have to meet the Lord? How confident are you that you can stand before Him without guilt, without worry, without nervousness? How will you approach a holy Lord God? 
And praise the Lord that it tells us because, and this is amazing, oh, this is amazing, because as He is, so are we in this world. As He is, so are we. That's amazing that the Lord would give me that kind of an identification that who He is is what I am. I'm like, I'm a amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And yet the Lord says that we shall be like Him. And we are going to be what He is. As He is, so are we. Not in the next world, but even in this world. Right now. So that when we have to meet the Lord in the next, we can have boldness. So that we can stand before Him without fear. The Bible asks the question, Who shall stand before this holy Lord God? And who can stand? Only those that can say, My righteousness comes from Him and not from Myself. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Galatians 6.14 Next. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. You could say getting back to this is, in a lot of these are very much true about the indicative. This is what we are. They, that's us, the believers, that are Christ. There's something that stems from being Christ's. Let me conclude by referencing Romans chapter 12, which will show us what Paul means when he says here, In verse 9, be found in him, that's in the law, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's how we are found now, righteous before God. And in Romans 11, 9, 10, and 11, we have the amazing story of how this this play on Israel and, and the Gentiles, how they were the olive tree and we were the unnatural ones and we were brought in and grafted in and now we partake of the root and the fatness of the olive tree and this is how God works with His elect people, how He calls them and brings them into the family, into the fold and into the, into the olive tree so that we can be fruit bearers. We partake of the... The, the fruit and the root, the, the root, partake of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So our strength comes from the Lord. And Paul in conclusion says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His riches and His ways past finding out. How did God ever choose Gentile people to be saved and reject Israel and give them blindness at least seasonally so that He could bring in the Gentile world? It's all because of mercy, it tells us there. And we're awed by it. And we're thinking, wow, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come? Why? Why? We just praise the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, for drawing me to yourself. In chapter 12 of Romans, Paul says, Therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So there it is. Romans 9, 10, 11. That is the indicative. That's what we are. We're, we're the Jacobs whom God loved. We're the, we're the promised seed that God showed mercy upon. And because of that, we say, as Paul says, we're besought by the Lord to seek after Him, to follow Him, to yield ourselves to Him. This is the spiritual, intelligent response to being a believer. It's unthinkable that someone be saved and not be a fruit-bearing person. We bear fruit for the Lord. Now maybe you're stuck right now in your life and there's not a lot of fruit and you're saying, man, I'm, you know, Jesus talks about being a 30-fold and a 60-fold and a 100-fold. I'm more like a 3-fold maybe. And you're feeling down on yourself. Well, it's, it's not the Lord's fault. We know that. 
But you know, God is merciful. He doesn't kick us to the side and say, you know, only the strong survive. You know, I'm going on with a, I'm going to put the Pauls and the Johns up in the, as the pillars up in the front. You guys just stay in the back and we'll drag you along. No, that's not what God's intention is for us. He wants us to be motivated. Why? And that goes back to Denzel Washington's presentation at the commencement exercises. What I, what I'm motivated by is by Christ dying for me. I can't get enough of that sight. I can't review it as often as it should be viewed. And that's what's going to generate in me a desire to want to live for Him. So remember the indicatives about what you are in Christ, your true identity, and then those imperatives. Don't switch them. Lots of Christians want to put the imperatives and forget about the indicatives. Like, I gotta do, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. No, no, no. We do what we do because we are what we are by the mercies of God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you have administered towards us by giving us faith, Lord, to believe in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, O God, that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for your great salvation that you have generated in our hearts. And Lord, for anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, we pray that even right now, the conviction of being a sinner and guilty before you might truly be forefront in their minds and hearts and that they would seek you, Lord, and that they would find you, that, Lord, you would reach out to them, Lord, and draw them to yourself and give them a fresh and true vision of the cross, that their hearts too would burn with enthusiasm and excitement. Lord, open the eyes of their understanding that they would understand the gospel. Lord, we give you worship and thanks for these reminders, Lord, that Scripture brings to our attention to not be found in our own righteousness, but to be found in the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Christ Jesus. For it's in His name we give you praise. Amen. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Please rise with us.
Thank you for the beautiful truth that you took your took our sin upon yourself. He who bore our sins in his on his on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so, Lord, uh, may we carry with us, O Lord, the thought of that righteousness within us, of Christ and the Holy Spirit abiding within us and giving us strength for the day, for the week ahead. Give us opportunities to praise you and to, O Lord, witness your gospel, O Lord, to lost souls, and bring us back again to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Amen.